California Congressman Kevin McCarthy, the shortest serving Speaker of the House in over 140 years, is ending his extraordinary 2023 by throwing in the towel. Now it is time to pursue my passion in a new arena. While I'll be departing the House at the end of this year, I will never, ever give up fighting for this country that I love so much. If you blinked, you might have missed Mr. McCarthy's 10-month term as the country's highest Republican elected official. And that's not just because it was so short. It was also entirely unproductive. McCarthy bargained away basically everything to win the speaker's gavel, and he got nothing in return for it. That is the lesson for people who court the far right, who do the bidding of Donald Trump, who look the other way. And right now, Republicans all across the country are learning that lesson. Remember Trump's fake electors plot in the 2020 election? The coordinated effort to get fake slates of electors to cast pretend electoral votes for Donald Trump? Well, those fake electors cosplayed those dramas in seven states They got nothing for it, and they are now the subject of some very real investigations. In Georgia, Fonnie Willis has charged three of the 16 fake electors in that state as part of her conspiracy case against Donald Trump. In Michigan, 16 fake electors have been charged by the state's attorney general. One of them is already cooperating with prosecutors. Today in Nevada, a grand jury announced that it has indicted six of Nevada's fake electors. All of those cases are making their way through the courts. And in the state of Wisconsin, we finally got something we have not yet seen, accountability. Today, Donald Trump's 10 Republican fake electors in the state of Wisconsin officially agreed to settle a lawsuit over their election forgery. Those 10 Republican Republican fake electors have agreed to withdraw their fake documents. They have agreed to acknowledge that Joe Biden won the 2020 presidential election three years later. And they have all agreed to never serve as presidential electors in any election where Donald Trump is on the ballot. So all of that is meaningful. And it is long overdue. But it is also very clarifying. Because as part of that settlement in Wisconsin, we have also learned new details about what that fake electors plot looked like behind the scenes. And those details are damning, especially for Republicans, especially for Donald Trump. In one set of text exchanges, one of the fake electors refers to the whole plot as a possible steal, as in what we're trying to do here is steal an election. Specifically, while discussing the logistics of the plot, the fake elector says they don't want to have a technicality mess up the possible steal. And then in case you were wondering, the fake elector then clarifies that by they, he means the Republican Party of Wisconsin and Trump's lawyers. Oh, okay. Just to be clear, another person on the text chain asks, how do you feel about all of this? And that same fake elector replies, I feel like I have to do it. Otherwise, there will be a target on my back in my own district. Got to toe the Trump line. Otherwise, sound familiar, Kevin McCarthy? In this Wisconsin settlement, it is clear that Trump's team and the National Republican Party were all over this fake electors plot in ways we did not perhaps truly understand. Here's another text message from a Wisconsin Republican Party insider. On a phone conf with Rudy G, he's saying to all the states, 
no heads up to any media on electors meetings. Rudy G says no press at the sham elector certification. Got that? In another exchange, another elector laments, apparently Ken Chesbrough is inviting himself to this thing. And sure enough, these new pictures show Trump lawyer slash skunk at the garden party, Ken Chesbrough, in the room, overseeing the fake elector spot in Wisconsin, snapping pictures like it was a birthday party and not a coordinated attempt to overthrow democracy. The Trump team was apparently so involved in this plot in Wisconsin that they provided private security to the fake electors as they gathered together to pretend certify votes for Donald Trump. So today we are finally seeing the consequences here for all of this. There are settlements, there are statements, there are investigations, there are trial dates. All of these things are finally happening. And none of it looks particularly good for Donald Trump and his allies. The more we learn about these plots and players across the country, the more we see how directly Team Trump appears to have been involved. Which is why today in Georgia, we learned that Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis plans to call some of Trump's inner circle to the witness stand in her case against Donald Trump. And that includes Trump's vice president, Mike Pence, his former attorney general, Bill Barr, and his former current, who can know, strategist, Steve Bannon, called to the witness stand to testify under oath. Joining me now is Andrew Weissman, former senior member of Robert Mueller's special counsel and co-host of the indispensable MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump. Andrew, thank you for being here. Good to be here. I, I see the names Bill Barr. I see the name Mike Pence, Steve Bannon. And my first question is, how realistic is it that we're actually going to see these folks on the witness stand down in Georgia? Well, I'm less interested in Georgia because there's no trial date. Um, so. Sure. It is it is realistic that they would be called when there is a trial date. And if there is a trial date before the election, um, if it is after the election, it is there's no be, there's no chance. Well, it, it's really going to be a question of who wins that election, yeah. um, which is. But I, I do think that the real question for the for those three is whether they'll be called in the federal, federal case. case. Um, and there, Mike Pence, for sure, yep. um, will be a witness. I think Bill Barr also will be a witness. And regardless of the baggage, and they have significant baggage in terms of their towing the line for the uh, Trump administration, in many ways, that makes them better witnesses in terms of their credibility. And as I've said about Mike Pence, he is both a really devastating witness and also an exhibit, um, because you can compare somebody who had the exact same interest as Donald Trump, who is on the ballot, Mm -hmm. who had every interest, if there was fraud in the election, to say it, who is modeling what you do in this country when you lose. I mean, this is like, you know, this is what parents should be. Any normal parent is teaching a, you know, a child, which is if you lose, that's it. It's over. You, you, you take your bubbles and go home. This is how you lose. Right. Exactly. And so I think he will be quite a strong witness. I think the same is true with Bill Barr, especially given just how much he did mm-hmm. for Donald Trump. And, you know, certainly I and other people in the Mueller investigation are certainly very aware of how much he did. Um, but, you know, there was a line he was not willing to cross as well. Given the scope of what we now know in the last few days, uh, Jack Smith would like to bring into this case to the federal trial 
presumably in March. Yep. Uh, I would assume some former Justice officials, Justice Department officials, are going to be on his list for witnesses as well as they are on Fonnie Willis's list. Yep. It, I did not realize, because I didn't go to law school, uh, <laughs> that if you are even a former DOJ official, you need the approval of the present-day Justice Department in order to testify. Is that an awkward position for Merrick Garland to be in, given how desperate Trump is to have a through line between the Biden administration, the Biden Justice Department and the federal investigation? I, I don't think so, because it is it's so relatively automatic. Um, this is not something where, yes, you do need to have approval of under something called the Tuhi regs. Um, well, I, knew, I knew it was like there was going to be a Garcia. There yeah. was going to be some kind yeah. of legal reference point. Yes, Please exactly. So um, but it is it is not that hard. And it's also the kind of thing that Merrick Garland could delegate um, and say, you know, I'm going to give it to an apolitical, meaning a, a non-political member of the department to make that decision. It's in, in a case like this, it would always be granted. Um, what you're really trying to do is avoid someone being called where it's harassing or there's just no relevance. Um, but here, I mean, could you really imagine that Mike Pence or um, Jeffrey Rosen, the, the acting yes. attorney general, doesn't have relevant information? They've, you know, they've actually already testified before Congress. So we know what they're going to say in large part. So, of course, they'll be given permission. So I don't think they're of course, Donald Trump will, will use all yes. of this. But he's going to this is one where you have to just ignore that. Um, and, you know, I would argue a lot of it could be ignored uh, yes. because it is all political in, in many cases, almost all political. I, I do want to get your reaction to these fake electors plots yeah. being effectively dismantled all yeah. over the country, because, you know, there is the, the actual legal, the, the nuts and bolts of Jack Smith's legal argument here. But there's also the court of public opinion. And to right. see these state AGs or these civil suits uh, end in settlements, end in admissions of, of right. wrong, if not wrongdoing, fraud, saying Joe Biden is actually the winner of this. We yep. should never have done this. This was a fake elector's plot and nothing else. How meaningful is that for Jack Smith as, as we barrel towards that March 4th date? So I think that's a, a great question because I was thinking about sort of how to explain this. Because when you think about big picture, the big picture is you have 10 electors who said, what we did was wrong, yeah. that that we are not real electors, that Joe Biden won, that we were told to sign up only as a contingency, that this was not going to be advanced unless and until the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled in our favor mm -hmm. and we were misled. Um, so that's just big picture you know, a, a good thing for the public to know, um, because we're in this the state of the world where it's like two plus two doesn't equal four necessarily, yes. depending on what and to have fake electors themselves say this. This was a steal. Seems, exactly. seems meaningful. Exactly. Now, on a legal front, um, I think one of the more relevant things and a shout out to Mary McCord, because, you know, she was one of the yes. lead lawyers in this civil case. Um, that's what she does when she's not working on this podcast. It's a um, full-time you know, job, that podcast. Exactly. Um, so just to be serious, this is such an important case because you have 10 people who are saying they will fully cooperate, who are saying that we were misled by who? People in the Trump campaign. And you know who the chief person is? Chesbro. Yes. He's um, in the room with them, Andrew. Absolutely. I was shocked to see him, by the way, masked, in a room as the fake electors do their fake certification 
taking photos. I mean, you cannot have yeah. more direct engagement than that. Yeah. And just to be clear, the, you know, there's a defense here for people, which is, oh, I wasn't, I didn't think I was a fake elector. I thought I was a contingent elector, mm-hmm. which is if the Supreme Court of the state had said we are now real, that the election was actually for Trump, then we were ready. Um, that's sort of the defense to a criminal charge. Chesbo doesn't have that because he was going to use these electors no matter what. Mm -hmm. And you know how one of the ways we know that on the 14th of December, the Wisconsin Supreme Court rules against Trump and says this is frivolous. And on the 15th, Kenneth Chesbro is saying, let's use this and is orchestrates getting these to Washington so they can be used, even though the Wisconsin Supreme Court had said you lost. In defiance of the court. Exactly. Um, so he is like, that is blatant on his part. The fact that the Trump campaign is supplying security here, the fact that Rudy Giuliani is literally directing them not to have press in the room for these fake costume certifications, if you will, that all seems like damning evidence directly connecting these state level plots to overturn the election or the results of the election to Trump HQ. If you're Jack Smith, you probably know all of this anyway. I would imagine it strengthens your hand. Um, do you imagine? Do you imagine that th- some of this material is going to come up in his case when Absolutely. it goes to trial? Absolutely. What he's going to want to do is show that this was an orchestrated scheme from headquarters. In other words, it's coming from Washington. This was not growing up sort of innately from the state seeing something wrong that was happening. In fact, in Nevada, where we just saw criminal indictments, there wasn't even a lawsuit at the time. So they basically, the charges, they sort of manufactured that so they could say, oh, well, we're doing this because there's this lawsuit. But that was, you know, cart before the horse. Yes. Um, So that is definitely going to be part of the March trial that Jack Smith has orchestrated. What what it feels like are is kind of like the th- the walls is it the walls are closing in or like the three dimensions are meeting right you have the state level um investigations and trials and and settlements to some degree you have the federal investigation uh looming in the dis- not so distant uh, future and then and then you have the the prosecution over at the DA's office in Fulton County there is a lot of overlap in these three arenas. Yep. And we know that Trump's team down in Georgia is asking to have access to some of Jack Smith's material up in Washington, D.C. The Georgia folks for Trump are saying, we need access to it. We may subpoena it. I mean, what is the likelihood that you're going to see more of an exchange of material between what's happening in Georgia and what's happening in Washington, given the the sort of common threads in those two indictments? So um, I think that there's no question that Jack Smith is going to want to give to the defense in the federal case everything that is relevant, anything that is potentially exculpatory, anything that is potentially impeaching. And I am sure Fonnie Willis is going to want to do the same thing. That is required both under the local rules and in due process. It doesn't matter that it's Donald Trump or, you know, John Doe or Andrew Weissman. I mean, that is what a defendant is entitled to. So that kind of crossover, I think you will see. Um, I also think there is an enormous overlap already in terms of the information that 
that both districts, the federal and the state, have. Um, but to be fair, like Donald Trump is going to have that because he is a defendant in both. So he may get it in the federal case. So he knows it. It's, right. not, like, it's not like he is going to be sitting there going, gee, I wonder what's happening in the federal case. He knows that as well. But for the moment, I think the key thing, because there's no child aid in Georgia, is to real. I really keep on focusing on, on, the- on, on you know, the D.C. case. Do they have all the discovery? Is there anything that could possibly delay that? case. And actually, can you answer that? I mean, there was, I myself was very interested in these sort of pending decisions from the D.C. Circuit Court over yeah. presidential immunity. I know you were too. You dedicated yeah. a lot of your beautiful podcast to it. Um, do you foresee any major speed bumps? I mean, I shouldn't say speed bumps because that diminishes the, the severity yeah. of a lot of this, the yeah. gravity of it. But do you see challenges in the road ahead for Judge Chutkin as she tries to keep the train on the tracks? Because as you say, this federal case in D.C. may be the the last best shot to actually hold Trump accountable for January 6th. Right. And for the public to have access to and to see all the evidence and be able to assess that before the election. Um, so two thoughts. One is um, I do think that the D.C. circuit will act quickly. The big unknown, which I can't answer, is the Supreme Court of the United States, right. whether they have enough votes to issue a stay. I will hazard a guess that because I think the presidential immunity claim is so weak here, um, it's hard to see that there are going to be enough votes to say we're going to stay this case. And the part of that is I think Judge Chutkin is doing something very smart by starting the jury selection essentially now. Yeah. She is making sure that the appellate courts, the D.C. Circuit and the Supreme Court understand you can't just turn around and say, "Okay, now you can start that getting a jury takes months. So if you start putting this trial off, it's not like the jurors just wait in the wings. She may have to start all over again, which will be a de facto pushing it off until after the election. And I don't I don't think, although this is a guess, that there will be enough votes on the Supreme Court to have that happen. I see you kind of like almost closed your eyes as you made a prediction about the Roberts court, which is I think what everyone does at this point. We don't think they're that crazy. Well, because you 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 feel it in your heart more that you you think it's so important to the nation to have the trial without question. And, And this court is, well, somewhat unpredictable. We will see. Andrew Weissman, it is a pleasure and a thrill and an honor to have you on the set, my friend. An honor to be here. It was full of platitudes (laughs) and praise. Thank you, Andrew. Coming up, it is fight night in the state of Alabama. Four Republican presidential candidates took to the debate stage and tried to stay on it. Plus, Kevin McCarthy is leaving Congress. He says that in his brief time as speaker, he, quote, rose to the challenge and did the right thing which just sounds exactly like what Kevin McCarthy thinks of Kevin McCarthy. Congressman Jamie Raskin joins me to weigh in on all of that. That's coming up next. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. 
Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Today, the congressman who bragged to reporters, I never quit. Today, that man called it quits with more than half his term remaining. And when he quit, he said this. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. We did our part. And when the stakes were the highest, we rose to the challenge. We were willing to risk it all, no matter the odds, no matter the personal cost. Simply put, we did the right thing. Simply put, we did the right thing. That is Kevin McCarthy's legacy, according to Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy's legacy, according to the facts, involves normalizing an attempted coup and bargaining away the dignity of the speakership. Perhaps the most consequential thing he did was not even a speaker. A few weeks after the insurrection on the Capitol, McCarthy traveled down to Mar-a-Lago to have dinner with Donald Trump. In so doing, McCarthy effectively brought Trump back into the good graces of the party and set the stage for his political comeback. In her new book, Liz Cheney explains why McCarthy made that fateful trip. The truth was pretty simple. Kevin McCarthy went to Mar-a-Lago because his ability to raise money had dried up after January 6th. Kevin needed money. Trump had lists of small-dollar donors, but Kevin would have to go beg Trump for them. And in order to use those lists, Kevin would have to help Donald Trump cover up the stain of his assault on our democracy. It was a price Kevin McCarthy was willing to pay. Joining me now is Congressman Jamie Raskin, Democrat from Maryland, former member of the January 6th Committee and ranking member of the House Oversight Committee. Congressman Raskin, thank you so much for being here tonight. I wonder what you make of Kevin McCarthy's uh, closing words about his legacy. When the stakes were the highest, we rose to the challenge. Simply put, we did the right thing. What do you what do you think of those? He did. Go ahead. (laughs) He clearly did the wrong thing. And when the stakes were highest, he completely fell apart. And the only part I agree with is when he says he risked it all, which is true if all means our democracy, our Constitution and the American Republic. I mean, this is a guy who called Donald Trump from his office on January 6th, which was besieged by insurrectionists and begged Trump to call off the dogs he had unleashed on them. And Trump, true to form, said, oh, those are not my people. That's Antifa. And McCarthy knew they were. He said, no, these are your people, Mr. President. And uh, Trump said to him, well, maybe they just care a little bit more about a fair election than you do, Kevin. And unlike Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and eight other House Republicans who also lived through that experience, who voted to impeach Trump for inciting and leading that insurrection. Uh, Kevin McCarthy just put his tail between his legs and voted no. Um, He did briefly blame it on Trump, saying that Trump had to take responsibility for it. But within days, as Liz says in her book, uh, was 
like a puppy dog clamoring for more money down in Mar-a-Lago. He showed no backbone. He showed no courage. And he said, well, rather than impeach uh, and support the trial of Donald Trump, he would support an independent outside 9-11 style commission made up of five Republicans, five Democrats with equal subpoena power on both sides. And our negotiator, Benny Thompson, agreed to that. Even though we were a majority in the House, he said, fine, we'll do it 50-50, five Republicans, five Democrats. And then when Trump told McCarthy, no, there will be no investigation of January 6th, McCarthy withdrew his own proposal and opposed his own proposal and then tried to sabotage the House Select Committee, which Nancy Pelosi set up in the absence of a bipartisan, independent outside investigation. And then later, after Biden was elected, although he couldn't bring himself to support the impeachment of Donald Trump for inciting a violent insurrection, which almost got even Kevin McCarthy killed, um, he decided to support an, an impeachment investigation against Joe Biden for nothing, without even identifying a potential crime. So um, I say a good riddance to him. Uh, he he did nothing for his country or his constitution uh, at its moment of crisis. I, you mentioned the um, House in impeachment investigation into Joe Biden, and I believe House Republicans are preparing for an official vote on that next week. Uh, do do you do you have an expectation as to what is going to come of that? And is there anything Democrats should prepare to do in advance of it? Well, remember that all the Republicans do now is fratricidal internecine warfare and expulsions and impeachments and resignations uh, and censure motions um, and that's what it's come to. I mean, it's an utterly cannibalistic group of people there. Um, so they're going after Joe Biden after 10 months of an investigation, which has produced overwhelming evidence that there's no crime, much less a crime at the level of uh, uh, a high crime and misdemeanor under the Constitution. They can't even identify what they're looking for anymore. It is you know, completely theater of the absurd. Um, they they have to get every Republican. We know Congressman Ken Buck, who's a serious lawyer who was head of the criminal division of the U.S. Attorney's Office in Colorado, is totally opposed to it. He's looked at it and he knows they're not alleging a crime against Joe Biden and there's no evidence. And, you know, whatever you say about Hunter Biden, he's not president of the United States and has never been a public official. Uh, and he's already got a special counsel uh, dealing with his case. So um, there's nothing there. And the serious lawyer know that. So we believe that, you know, there are more than um, a dozen uh, Republicans in Biden districts um, who will be thinking very hard about casting this vote. It could be a career terminating event for them if they get pulled into it. The problem is the Republicans have nothing else going on and they want to continue to build uh, their political house of cards on an absolute mirage and an illusion. Um, when we talk about illusions, it's the Republicans have become so obsessed with sort of the meta narrative, the investigation of the investigations, that it sort of defies anything I've seen in, in my, my very long lifetime here. I, I, I am astounded to see that, that Jim Jordan is now launching an investigation into Fonnie Willis's communications, uh, 
and uh, sort of, if you will, document sharing with the January 6th committee. You were on the January 6th committee. I'm sure you've been following what's been happening in Fulton County, as we all have. What do you imagine Jim Jordan is going to find when he looks into the relationship between the Fulton County DA's office and the January 6th committee? Well, um, if they get some of the documents, of course, it it will uh, reveal that what took place, I assume, because I wasn't involved in it, was what takes place every single day all over the country, which is uh, different law enforcement entities and prosecutors share information that they have. I mean, it's it's not that shocking. But of course, Jim Jordan, uh, who, by the way, still has not responded to our subpoena and has violated our subpoena and uh, would have been held in contempt of Congress uh, if we had had some more time. Uh, But in any event, um, Jim Jordan has decided that he is going to use the congressional investigative powers to go after state and local law enforcement or federal law and federal law enforcement if they interfere um, with his guru master, Donald Trump. Uh, And so it's an utterly lawless situation where they elevate one guy who, of course, has been found guilty of sexual assault in civil court in New York and defaming the woman he sexually assaulted and found guilty in civil court in New York of committing uh, civil fraud and inflating the num- the values of his different real estate properties, and who has 92 uh, federal and state felony criminal charges against him. They want to elevate him above the rule of law, and so they will attack any prosecutor, any law enforcement official, any cop who they think gets in his way, just like they didn't care about the 150 Capitol officers and D.C. Metropolitan Police Department officers who were bloodied and wounded and hospitalized by the insurrectionists who Donald Trump sent to Capitol Hill, according to the Department of Justice uh, this week. So, we're we're looking at a party which, the way most authoritarian parties do, describes itself as pro-law and order, actually wrapping itself around criminality. And if you look at the people Donald Trump is pardoning from Dinesh D'Souza uh, to Michael Flynn to Roger Stone, the inner political circle of his campaign are criminals who he has pardoned. Congressman Jamie Raskin, putting it all in perspective. Thank you for your time tonight, sir. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you, Alex. Coming up later this hour, onstage bullying is apparently the Republican debate strategy of the hour. My friend and colleague Jen Psaki joins me to break all of that down. And later, freed hostages are furious with Benjamin Netanyahu over his war strategy in Gaza. What happened inside their meeting is coming up. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. 
MSNBC. Understand more. Moments ago, Las Vegas law enforcement officials gave the first real details about the shooting at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, this afternoon. Police confirmed that three victims of today's shooting have died. One more victim remains hospitalized. Earlier today, that victim was in critical condition, but they since have been upgraded to stable. Multiple others have been taken to hospitals for panic attacks caused by today's shooting. Police also confirmed that they know the identity of the shooter and can confirm that the shooter is also deceased. Police are not releasing any information about the shooter until the shooter's next of kin is notified. Now, three law enforcement sources tell NBC News tonight that the suspect in question was a man in his 60s, but we have no indication yet of the suspect's motive. We also do not yet know what type of gun was used in today's attack. Police have so far declined to comment. But we do know that at 11.45 a.m. local time this morning, the shooter started an attack on the fourth floor of a building at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. The shooter then went to multiple other floors before being confronted by police outside of the building where the shooter ultimately died. Now, just hours before all of that unfolded, Democrats on Capitol Hill introduced a new assault weapons ban in the Senate. And here was the Republican response. Americans have a constitutional right to own a firearm. Every day, people across Wyoming responsibly use their Second Amendment rights to keep and to bear arms. Today is about defending those rights against those on the other side of the aisle who wish to take them away from us. Republican Senator John Barrasso's objection blocked the Democrats' unanimous consent motion to pass the first assault weapons ban since the last one expired in the year 2004. It was one of three pieces of gun reform legislation blocked by Republicans in the Senate today, just hours before that shooting in Las Vegas. And if you are wondering what the odds are that gun reform legislation would be blocked by Republicans on the same day as a mass shooting— well, unfortunately, the odds are very, very high. So far, our nation has experienced this year 630 mass shootings. Now, this is day number 340 in the year 2023. So 340 days, 630 mass shootings. That's nearly as many, twice as many mass shootings as, as we've seen days. Just last Friday, there was another mass shooting in Las Vegas. That day, five men were shot at a homeless encampment about 20 minutes from today's shooting. And one of the witnesses of that mass shooting on Friday was also a witness to today's mass shooting. I mean, they just shot the five homeless people over there on Charleston. Um, a week ago, and I was in the parking lot over there, and I was there when it happened because I was on my way to work. But this, I was just getting coffee, and I just seen people just running everywhere. You know, it, it was a matter of time. I mean, it's a, it's a gun thing all over the United States. It was a matter of time. There are so many mass shootings in America that the odds are not even that incredible that you could witness one or two in a single week. There are so many mass shootings in America that Republicans could have objected to gun reform legislation any day this year. 
and odds are there would have been a mass shooting on the same day. That is how common these are. And Republicans still refuse to do anything about it. Still ahead tonight, Republican presidential hopefuls look to the debate stage for the fourth time this cycle. MSNBC's Jen Psaki will join me to preview what happened on that stage and whether any of the candidates has a fighting chance of being anywhere close to the prohibitive frontrunner, Donald Trump. Who's moderating this debate? This should be Tucker Carlson, Joe Rogan, and Elon Musk. We'd have 10 times the viewership asking questions that GOP primary voters actually care about and bringing more people into our party. You think the Democrats, and we've got Kristen Welker here, you think the Democrats would actually hire Greg Gutfeld to host a Democratic debate? They wouldn't do it. And so the fact of the matter is, I mean, Kristen, I'm going to use this time because this is actually about you and the media and the corrupt media establishment ask you the Trump-Russia collusion hoax that you pushed on this network for years. Was that real or was that Hillary Clinton made up disinformation? Answer the question. Go. Mr. Ramaswamy. That was Vivek Ramaswamy, a man running to be the Republican nominee for president of the United States, going after the moderator of the last Republican debate, our own Kristen Welker from NBC. We saw more of the same this evening as the Republican presidential field, minus Donald Trump, publicly sparred once again during their fourth and final debate of this year. Joining me now is my friend and colleague, Jen Psaki, former Biden White House press secretary and, of course, host of MSNBC's Inside with Jen Psaki. Jen, thank you for being here. Thank you for watching thank this you. debate so that we did <laughs> not have that. You're welcome for that. Yeah, I, I really, <laughs> it is a national service you're doing us all. Um, what has been happening? I've been getting dribs and drabs in the commercial breaks, and it sounds if possible, even uglier than the previous two debates. or their three, That is three right, debates. Alex. I mean, you just played a clip from a month ago where I think we all watched and thought, wow, this is this is going off the rails and it's a little obnoxious and rude. And this debate tonight, I think, made the last one look like it was just hunky-dory and everybody was holding hands and singing Kumbaya together. Um, it was, I mean, a couple things I would have observed from it. Uh, one is Vivek Ramaswamy. He took every single glove off, even more than he has in the past. And he was downright nasty at times. At Nikki Haley in particular, he called her a fascist. Um, he said she was corrupt. I mean, that was he went after her again and again. What does that tell you? Um, and also, Ron DeSantis went after Nikki Haley. That tells you that Nikki Haley is the one they all think is going to beat all of them and be the alternative to Trump. That's what it tells you. Chris Christie actually went after Trump more than anyone else. A, not a ton, but went after him more. And he kind of called out um, some of these attacks, including from Vivek Ramaswamy against Nikki Haley during the debate as well. There was a crazy moment that, I, I mean, I, I, there were a lot of things in the, that were crazy in the debate. Vivek Ramaswamy actually said that January 6th was an inside job, which wow. we shouldn't miss a moment like that, right? Um, in all the attacks and all of the political gamesmanship, some of the things that are said by these candidates, including that specifically, should be alarming to everyone. Um, th let's talk a little bit about the dynamic between um, Nikki Haley and the rest of the field. She has come out swinging in mm -hmm. previous debates that has helped her rise in the polls that has made her for in some circles uh, seen as the the never Trump most viable never Trumper that could potentially steal the baton from Donald right. Trump, though she is, I think, 45 points behind him. How was she on the debate stage this evening? 
pretty self-controlled, I would say. I mean, she was getting absolutely pummeled by Vivek Ramaswamy, by Ron DeSantis, uh, over and over again about everything from who can be more anti-trans to uh, how corrupt they said she was to her to whether she was soft on China and how much she was like, you know, uh, Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton. There was a lot thrown at her. There were moments where she punched back, but there were moments where she was restrained. And my bet is she knows that she is on the up. She's climbing on the up. She is still far behind Trump, as you said. It's a very tricky path for her to actually beat him. But in terms of the candidates on the stage, she's most on the rise. Now, the interesting moment that happened was when Chris Christie came to her defense against Vivek Ramaswamy and talked about all of her time in service. I don't know. I mean, that was the right thing to do, but it's, it's hard to calculate exactly what he's trying to do there. Well, yes, and it's not sure that Nikki Haley wants a bear hug from Chris Christie, right? I'm not she, sure. <laughs> it was kind of a nice moment, but uh, but yeah, she she may or may not. She was kind of smiling while he was doing it. Yeah, right. With friends like this, I, well, I mean, I think for Nikki Haley, it's a very, very uh, careful line to tread, right? You've got to be sufficiently pro-MAGA, but you don't want to be too pro-MAGA that you alienate the never-Trumpers never and Chris well, Christie. And what, yeah. And what they attacked her on, Alex, no surprise, over and over again was the business ties and the business donors, uh, as if she was a person who was um, now completely tied to them, which because they know the MAGA base does not necessarily love that. Yes, they would rather have their governors fight the biggest businesses in their state like Ron DeSantis does. Jen Psaki, my friend, I am sorry our time together here is short. Please come back and spend the whole hour with me whenever you can. Love it. I know you're going to be hosting MSNBC's post-debate coverage beginning tonight at 10.30 p.m. on the official MSNBC YouTube channel, a.k.a. The Future. Uh, thank you, my friend. When we come back, still ahead tonight, what happened when Prime Minister Netanyahu met with recently freed hostages and their family members? We are going to have all the details on that explosive meeting coming up next. Today marks some of the heaviest fighting between Israel and Hamas since the war began. Israeli troops are now operating in the heart of Han Yunus, the main city in southern Gaza. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians, some of whom fled to the area after being told it was a safe zone, are now being told to evacuate even further south. The desperation in Gaza has put pressure on Prime Minister Netanyahu, who is being criticized both domestically and internationally. At a recent meeting of Israel's war cabinet, newly freed hostages accused Netanyahu of putting their lives in danger. In leaked audio recordings, one former hostage says every day in captivity was extremely challenging. We were in tunnels, terrified that would, it would not be Hamas, but Israel that would kill us. And then they would say Hamas killed you. Another freed hostage whose husband remains in captivity said to Netanyahu, my husband was separated from us three days before we returned to Israel and he was taken to the tunnels. And you're talking about flooding the tunnels with seawater? You are bombing tunnel routes exactly where they, the hostages, are located. In response, Netanyahu offered, there is a substantial effort to gather evidence and reach everyone. The question is how to bring everyone back. But those words were met with heckling. At one point, several family members of the hostages shouted at Netanyahu, repeatedly yelling the word shame. 
Meanwhile, President Biden, who has shown nearly unparalleled support for Israel throughout this crisis, has not spoken with Netanyahu in 10 days. It's the longest stretch of silence between the two leaders since October 7th. And in the Arab world, protesters in Bahrain, Jordan and Morocco have demanded their governments cut ties with Israel. In Egypt, protesters again gathered in Tahrir Square, the birthplace of Egypt's Arab Spring uprising. All of this has created significant destabilization, not just the humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza, but the political tension throughout the region. As The New York Times reports, the war in Gaza has not only laid bare a chasm between many Arab leaders and their people, it has widened it. That's our show for tonight.